Welcome in, guys. It is Thursday, June 10th, 2021. Welcome to the second episode of State of the Family Courts. I'm your host, Mark Real. I'm a Southern California family law attorney and the founder of Real Fathers Rights. Tonight, we have a very special guest hailing from the state of Illinois. Joseph Emmert is a divorce attorney, author, and speaker. In over 15 years of practice, Joseph has helped hundreds of men successfully navigate their divorce and begin their new lives. He has been voted a leading lawyer and an Illinois super lawyer since 2012 and was voted the prestigious AVO Client's Choice Award in 2014. He's the author of Winning Your Divorce, The Top 10 uh, Mistakes Men Make and How to Avoid Them. He is the founder of Emmerich Divorce Law, um, which is a firm based in Warrenville, Illinois, and serves Chicago, Chicagoland area, and Northwestern Illinois. So join me in welcoming Joseph Emmerich. Hey, thanks for joining us tonight, Joe. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. Um, so we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll hop right in to the topics for tonight. So first thing we always cover with all of our guests is we want to talk about the laws in your specific state. And I always reference National Parents Organization um, because they have a report card on each state's custody laws. So last week we talked about Tennessee. Tennessee had a C in terms of a grade, which is sitting there right there in the middle of the 51 jurisdictions, the 50 states in DC. Uh, the state of Illinois grades out as a C minus, so slightly below average. The, the biggest negative um, the NPO has on Illinois is there's no statutory preference or presumption of shared parenting. So Joe, having been at it in the Chicagoland area for over 15 years now, um, what is the law? How does it work for dads? And really, how does it play out in the courts? Well, I, I can tell you this, Mark, if you had looked at that grade a couple of years ago, it probably would have been a D. Uh, there is no statute with a presumption of shared parenting. Uh, it's been uh, promoted and kind of run through the state legislature a couple of times, but it always seems to die in committee. So uh, there's no presumption whatsoever, uh, but it has gotten a little bit better for men in a couple of areas. Uh, approximately three years ago, they made some changes to both uh, the child support and the uh, maintenance slash alimony statute. And uh, whereas before it had been really brutal, particularly on men who more often than not are the people paying support and maintenance, uh, but it really softened it. And uh, Illinois went from being a percentage state to being a uh, income shares state, which is where they actually consider the other spouse's income when they go to set child support and maintenance and that sort of thing. So most men in Illinois who have maintenance or child support obligations have actually seen their obligations go down uh, in the past couple of years as compared to before. But uh, the lack of a, a presumption of shared custody is still uh, Illinois' Achilles heel. Okay, so we got no presumption in Illinois. Same thing here in uh, California, no presumption of 50-50 uh, custody. Um, and on top of that, in the state of California, they have, uh, there's a friendly parent clause, we'll call it, in the law, where a judge is only supposed to order that joint custody if the parents essentially agree to it. So how, do, how does that play out in the state of Illinois in terms of the temporary orders and then as cases are litigated? Well, well fortunately in Illinois, there's no friendly parent clause. I think most judges uh, who sit in the domestic relations division, which is what they call it in Illinois, uh, most of them take the attitude that, you know, unless the parties are going at it tooth and nail or just can't get past the hurt and the, the drama of the divorce, you know, they should have joint decision-making and they should have, uh, you know, what you call joint custody. Uh, so, Really, in Illinois, you have to demonstrate something that is a real barrier to communication between the parents or a real uh, a real roadblock to co-parenting in order to get sole decision-making. So that's one thing that Illinois has going for it, I guess. Gotcha. Okay. And so um, in Illinois, kind of walk us through, so there's a filing and then temporary orders. 
Um, where, where is it a state that tends to lean towards granting joint custody in that temporary order? Um, or is it a state that goes a different direction? Yeah, most good question. Most, uh, most jurisdictions in Illinois uh, will ask the people right at the beginning, you know, do you think you're going to have an agreement on decision making and parenting time? Mm -hmm. And most people say no. Uh, and so the courts will immediately send them to mediation, uh, you know, to take a first stab at seeing if there's anything they can agree to. Uh, and if mediation works, great. If it doesn't, then the court usually appoints uh, a third party. Uh, in Illinois, we call them a guardian ad litem or a child's representative. Uh, and they kind of act as the eyes and ears of the court, do a brief investigation, talk to all the parties, including the kids, if the kids are old enough to verbalize their, you know, their positions. Uh, and then the, the court deals with it that way. But as far as temporary orders, uh, very often you will see a temporary parenting time schedule uh, really biased in favor of mom. But uh, as far as decision-making goes, at least on a temporary basis, the courts are pretty good about making the parties at least consult with each other before decisions get made during the divorce. Gotcha. So um, do you see in, in the Illinois law, is there issues with that temporary order? We'll call it physical custody. I don't, I don't know what Illinois terminology is. Does that usually put men behind the eight ball in the state of Illinois in terms of getting that equal access or the access they want? It does. And, you know, one of the sad facts, I, I guess you could call it a sad fact, is that you know, perception is, is nine tenths of the rule. So even if you have uh, a very involved father or, or a, uh, perhaps a father who even works from home and is around the kids all the time, uh, once that temporary order gets in place, uh, people sometimes forget that judges are human beings too underneath that robe. And, you know, the judge, let's say a, a divorce goes along for eight, nine, 10 months, maybe even a year and a half. You know, the judge's tendency at the end of that, when you get ready to do a permanent order or a, you know, a, a permanent uh, judgment, he's going to look at what's been going on for those past six or seven or eight months. And if, if nothing awful has happened, you know, then the easy thing to do is just to keep doing that. So a lot of times the, the temporary order becomes, you know, a fate accompli to the ultimate order. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. So it plays out similarly, I think in a lot of states that men end up behind the, the eight ball and then have to work their way back from it. Yep. So now that we've covered Illinois law, what I want to turn to is um, really, it's, it's going to be more uh, advice, not specific to Illinois, but really to dads everywhere. So um, you heard in the intro, I introduced uh, Joe as an attorney and an author. So he is the author of the book, and I actually have, have my copy here, um, The uh, is Winning Your Divorce, The Top 10 mis uh, Mistakes Men Make and How to Avoid Them. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a great resource, no matter really where you're at in the process of divorce or if you're separating from a significant other you uh, co-parent with and you aren't married. Um, because I think uh, Joe and I were talking before we went live. We see the same handful of issues over and over again in every single uh, man's case. So what what uh, uh, we'll kind of I'm going to pick off a couple of chapters that I received the most questions on, so we can uh, we can talk about those. I'm also going to put a link to Joe's book on Amazon in the bio. Not only is it to his book, which is a great resource, but it's a link to Amazon Smile that is linked to donate a portion of the proceeds to the father's rights movement. So um, click through that link, go through Amazon's uh, smiles, support Joe, educate yourself and also support the father's rights movement. So the first one here, it's chapter one in, or, or it's the first uh, chapter of uh, in, in the book is moving out of the marital residence. So we see the, uh, we see an extremely common thing is women, the, the woman, the wife, the girlfriend, kicks the father out of the house, tells him you got to leave. So what should a father do in those instances when the wife or girlfriend is like, you got to leave, you're not welcome here anymore? Well, <clears throat> there's a reason I put it first in the book. It's probably the most common mistake I see. Uh, 
there is this this expectation, this this uh, concept that's kind of reached cultural consciousness that if if somebody files for divorce, then the parties have to split up, and that's quite frankly not true. Uh, the court doesn't expect you to split up. Uh, you know, it's more of a social construct. Uh, I always tell guys, you know, unless there's been some sort of domestic violence or something like that, absolutely do not leave that house. Uh, it's your house too. You have just as much right to be there as she does. And, uh, you know, if you do leave the house, I can guarantee you two things. Uh, the divorce is going to last much longer and it's going to be much more expensive. Uh, it's, it's so important that, uh, uh, even if you have to set up your own bedroom in the basement, uh, I advise you not to leave the house. Okay. And then, um, so if, if possible, it's, you don't leave the house. You have every right to be there that they do, whether it's you own the home with them, whether you're renting, um, whatever it may be. I've seen situations where um, the wife is the only one on the title. California, we're what's called a community property state. The wife's the only one on the title but the parties bought the house when they were married. So all money that has went towards that mortgage is considered community property. So all that equity built up in the house is property of both parties. So Correct. stay in the house. It's going to show it's, if you leave, it's going to, the judge could construe that as I don't see myself as a, an important parenting figure if there are children involved and it's going to kind of string out your finances. So what happens if there is that domestic violence piece, whether it's her alleging or her saying, I'm going to tell people you're beating me, or I think more common than we would want to admit, the man is the victim of domestic violence. Yeah, domestic violence is, is definitely not a joke and something that uh, I think the divorce community has ignored for a little bit too long. Uh, obviously, if you're a man and you're worried about your soon to be ex manufacturing some sort of allegation against you. Uh, that's something you should pay close attention to. If, if you have her saying that to you in an email or a text, well, then you've got some ammunition, but very often it's said verbally and then it's hard to prove. Um, one of the harder things to deal with is when the man is the victim, because there's still this, this, uh, I guess, gender-based uh, concept about how, you know, guys don't, you know, accuse women of, of physically hurting them. You know, a guy can take it, you know, a guy shouldn't complain or go running to the, the authorities every time uh, his wife smacks him. But, you know, I have a number of clients who were the victims of uh, an aggressive and out of control spouse. And, you know, it took a while, but once you convince them to go in and get a restraining order or get an order of protection, she's got to leave the house. And then, you know, then you're safe. The kids are safe. Uh, you know, and, and very often that's the, the step that really brings home for the spouse that this is serious and this is happening and they better get their act together. Yeah. And one, one thing I see around that is men's lack of willingness to do that. It seems as if um, women are very proactive in if there's any sort of issue. We, we talked last week with, uh, with Tennessee attorney, Connie Reguli, um, and it was there's like the mean text domestic violence restraining orders. And like basically it's just words, but right. it's the right. safest thing for the judge to do that is to grant it. What yeah, The judge is going to err on the side of caution. So, yeah, I, that's why I said no, there's nothing to lose for a judge to grant it in their book and they have everything to lose if they don't grant it. Their name ends up in the paper if something does happen. So one thing I see and I, I have to talk guys through is when there is there are documented domestic incidents where the, the wife or the girlfriend is the aggressor, they're scared to move forward with that out of perception, maybe it's culturally or just they don't want to harm their soon-to-be ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. So what advice would you give to guys who are the victim of domestic violence but are afraid of the harm that they will do if they report it? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a phenomenon that, that 
still puzzles me after 16 years of doing this. You know, every once in a while you'll get a client and they will push back on all of your advice and all of the strategy that you discuss with them because you know, even though they're getting divorced, they don't really want to hurt the other side. And I have to sit them down and I say, look, you know, I'm your advocate. I'm your attorney. If you want me to fight opposing counsel, I'll fight opposing counsel. If you want me to fight your spouse, I will. If you want me to fight with the judge, I will. But if I have to fight you too, then this battle's already lost. You know, there are certain consequences of getting a divorce. And they, they have nothing to do with, with hurting or intentionally harming the other side. They're just consequences as a result of the law. You know, your life is going to be different. Uh, it's not going to be the same. And there are certain things that the court has to do. So, you know, filing things in court, asking the judge to do certain things, you know, that's not hurting the other side. You're just going through the steps that are necessary to bring about the result, which in this case is the divorce. Yeah, so true. So I'm going to pull up a question here because it ties in really well right now. So Mike asks, what if it's already believed that you're the aggressor? So domestic violence, a lot of times he said, she said, a lot of times it goes in favor of the, the, the woman. What does a man do if there's already the presumption that they are the aggressor in this relationship? Well, there's two things you can do. Number one, Everybody wants to be secure in their house. Everybody wants to feel safe. So go down to Costco or go down to Sam's Club and buy security cameras and put them all over the inside of the house. Uh, that way, if she attempts to manufacture some sort of scenario against you, you're going to have video evidence. Uh, the second thing you can do is start, uh, start building your case. And what I mean by that is if she says things to you, if other people tell you that she said things, start keeping a log, start documenting everything you see and everything you hear. If you think that she's trying to paint you or create this perception of you as a bully or an instigator or, uh, you know, the, the aggressor in this scenario, uh, because they will slip up. They're either going to say that to somebody who, absolutely doesn't believe it, or they're going to send it to somebody on Slack or WeChat or text or Facebook Messenger, that they're going to say it to somebody. And if you can get a hold of that documentation, you can often undercut their whole, their whole plan. Yeah. And I thought you made a really good point about documentation. One thing I tell clients is from the moment that 70% of relationships, the woman is the one who is. That's the statistics we have right now. From the moment she says she wants it over or you think it's over, you need to go out and buy a journal and you need to just start documenting everything because they're going to take texts out of context. They're going to do all these things. And it's going to carry a lot of weight if you have this organized journal that shows exactly what you've been doing. That's going to carry more weight than them cutting and pasting text messages or her trying to recall what happened. Absolutely. All right. So we'll move on. This kind of actually plays into the second topic I wanted to talk about tonight. So the chapter of your book is called sticking your head in the sand and ignoring the process. Tell us a little bit about this phenomenon that men, men seem to get involved with. There's this, this certain percentage of guys who either shut down and, and, you know, I can understand that, you know, it's it can be depressing. It can be a shock to the system. You can, you know, kind of be stunned, especially if you didn't see it coming. I, I kind of get that. Or, or they'll, they'll treat it like it's a joke. Like she's not really serious. She'll come around eventually. This is just another one of her, you know, quote unquote episodes. You know, she did it to scare me because she wants me to start acting differently, but they, they, and I don't know whether they do that because they believe it or just because they can't accept it, but they will, you know, acknowledge that it's going on, but they won't really participate. They won't get an attorney. They won't, uh, they won't file any paperwork with the court that lets the court know they're going to represent themselves. They just kind of uh, 
slow walk everything and uh, treat it like it's not actually moving forward. And that's that's very often fatal to their case. Yeah, see that a lot out here in California. You have 30 days to respond once the other party files. The, the number of men I talk to that it's been one month, three months, six months, and still haven't even filed a response yet. Yep. So I, I'm sure we have some men, some men watching tonight that are going through that, the debate in their head, whether they should file or not. What do you tell clients um, in terms of either initiating the filing or being aggressive and proactive in responding? Well, number one, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't the Wild West. This isn't the 1870s. You know, you don't have to agree in order for them to divorce you. Uh, Illinois is a very similar statute to California in that, you know, if you don't respond 30 days after you've been served, they can theoretically file a motion for default and ask the court to let them proceed without you, uh, which is usually granted. So even if you're, you're unsure about what you want to do, even if you have questions and doubts about how to approach this divorce or how you want to handle it, at a minimum, file your appearance or file an answer with the court. So that's going to do three things. It's going to prevent the court from just letting her do whatever she wants and proceed without you. Number two, it's going to make the court aware that, hey, there is somebody else involved in this and they are paying attention. So the court's going to pump the brakes a little bit. And number three, it's also going to send a message to your spouse that, you know, surprise, you know, this is going to be something she's going to have to negotiate with and deal with. And she's not just going to steamroll you like she might have been doing during the relationship. Yeah, definitely. That's the single most common mistake I see. I don't know if I have, I, I don't see very often men come in and I'm like, okay, you came in at the right time. It's always seems to be three months too late, six months too late. And we got to dig out of a hole now rather right. than handling it right away. So right. another piece along those lines is there's this debate around filing first or running to the court as soon as you think. What's your opinion on that? And what advice would you give to men around that? About, about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, that was a real strategy because uh, – certain counties, certain districts were uh, had the reputation of being more friendly to women than others. So you would have your wife move out and she would go rent an apartment, maybe just outside of the county you lived in, in this other county. And then after 90 days, once she's established residency, she would file there. So there, there used to be some strategy involved uh, with where you filed and when you filed. But uh, Nowadays, for the most part, there's there's really no advantage to filing first. You don't get a you don't get a gold star. The judge doesn't think more highly of you for filing first. Uh, what the judges really dislike is people who stall. So uh, if you know this is going to happen, you might as well file. Or if she files and you get served with the papers, immediately take action. Don't sit on it for three weeks. Uh, don't go down to the bar and commiserate with your buddies about this awful thing that's happening to you, call some attorneys, take some free consults, go, you know, it's a really a buyer's market. There are a lot of attorneys out there as I'm sure, sure uh, you will agree with, but uh, you know, there's a wisdom and a multitude of counsel, you know, go do three or four consults, get different attorneys, opinions and ideas about your case. Don't just sit there and do nothing. Yeah, that, that's absolutely the worst thing you can do. It's not going anywhere. You don't have a choice whether you want to participate or not. Um, I, I tell guys, if if she sits you down at the kitchen table or she mentions in passing that she wants to get a divorce or she's going to kick you out, the next morning you should be in, in at least one lawyer's office having a conversation about your situation. Because if we get out in front of it, there's no hole to dig out of. That's true. I One of my... Uh... One of the first uh, lawyers I ever clerked for had a great saying. He said, when somebody shows you who they really are, believe them. <laughs> yeah, one 100%.
All right, so we'll move on now to um, more of a financial aspect. I think it's got a little bit of nuance to it. So I, I get a lot of questions around the breakup occurs, nothing's been filed yet. Um, what I was the I'm the only one making money. I was supporting my my wife or girlfriend. I've started paying child support off the record, even though it hasn't been ordered. So what are, what's the kind of general rule of thumb? about cutting off your wife or significant other um this is a problem for a lot of guys and it's a it's a completely understandable problem um especially if the divorce is happening because of some event like you discover your spouse is cheating on you or you know you come home one day and they've moved out you know, if it's a, if it starts off particularly bad, there's the tendency on the part of men to uh, fight back. You know, generally men are competitive. Uh, you know, they want to win. Uh, so this is somehow, somehow and sometimes viewed as a way to strike back. It's like, oh, you want to cheat on me? You want to move out? Fine. I'm going to cut you off. But and I, and I understand that. I do. I completely get it. Uh, divorce more so than some other areas of law is very emotional at times. And, and I, I can sympathize with guys. But if you do that, if you cut her off, you, you run a very serious risk. Um, and there are several ways that can backfire on you. Number one, uh, you can antagonize her. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe she was just going to leave and, and keep to herself. But, you know, if you antagonize her, then maybe she's actually going to go get an attorney. Maybe she's going to file a flurry of motions, haul you into court and, uh, you know, have the court set some kind of support. So, you know, rather than just giving her what you were giving her now, you're going to have to get an attorney. You're going to have to go to court probably two or three times. And then the judge is going to order you to pay or something anyway. Uh, plus, you're starting off your case with giving the judge the impression that you're, you know, a total asshole. Uh, and that's not how you want to play your cards. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I've often heard judges remark, especially when you step up the first time, the judge has questions about, you know, is there a parenting schedule? Is everybody being taken care of? You know, if you can tell the judge, Your Honor, the parties have separated, but my client's paying child support voluntarily, even before the court's order, that immediately buys you credibility with the judge. Uh, you know, the judge is already put into a space where, okay, this isn't going to be World War III. You know, the parties are, are doing things responsibly. He's not a jerk. They're trying to, to do the best they can until we get this settled. And it puts a whole different spin on how the judge views your case. Once again, goes back to the being proactive in your case and not sitting back and waiting. Yep. All right, so we're gonna go to a quick commercial break here, um, show you guys a commercial for the Father's Rights Movement's Equal and Shared uh, Parenting Benefits Program. We'll be right back on the other side. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, access services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $25 a month through Father's Day. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. All right, guys, welcome back. We'll open up part two here with a question. So this is a very, very common one, and it's probably one of the biggest issues for men. So finances and hiring an attorney. So, Joseph, what are some tips you can give guys 
that will allow them to save themselves money in terms of working with their attorney or finding an attorney? Well, for for your uh, your listeners in the audience who've never had to hire an attorney, uh, most attorneys work on what we call a retainer system. That's where the client gives the law firm or the attorney a sum of money up front, and then we place that into some sort of trust account where it sits. And then as, as we do work on your case during the month, we keep track of our time. And then at the end of the month, we run our bills and we debit that trust account for what we've earned that month. The problem comes in when you know you don't have the resources or the ability to come up with a chunk of money. So the good news is that there are a lot of lawyers and a lot of law firms now <clears throat> that are uh, finally catching up with the 21st century. Uh, they are doing things like taking uh, partial payments, fractional payments, pay as you go, uh, different uh, methods and different ways to pay your attorney, uh, mostly through updated and, and new kinds of software. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe your net worth is $2 million, but you don't have any liquidity. You know, you might have a lot of assets, but not much income. Well, you know, how does somebody like that afford an attorney? You know, very often the client or the potential client and the attorney can sit down and go over different options. And uh, there are a lot more options these days uh, as an alternative to a, a lump sum retainer up front uh, than there were even five years ago. So if, if any of your listeners are worried about even booking an appointment because they're not sure how they're going to pay for it, don't worry about that right now. Uh, most attorneys are, are very willing to work with you, provided that uh, both the potential client and the attorney can agree on a system. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big thing for me. Um, when you tell them kind of ballpark what it's going to cost to get started, they are rude, dismissive, angry about what you just said, instead of saying, is there any way we can make this work? And generally, you can find some sort of solution, whether it be in California, um, limited scope, they call it unbundled, um, where you handle certain aspects of it and you're not doing the entire case. Or um, like you mentioned, our, all of our software has the ability to do payment plans or monthly billing that can help lessen the burden up front, but also can prevent the attorney from doing all this work and not getting paid. Yep. There are even, uh, there's even something now called a reverse retainer that uh, is gaining a little bit of steam. That's where somebody knows that their relationship is, is on the skids and probably headed that way. So they start giving their attorney, you know, a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks a month for a year. And then at the end of that period of time, then they pull the trigger. Yeah. Almost like layaway for a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, let's move on to another very, very common mistake. Hiding secrets or bad facts from your attorney. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I could have almost written a book about this alone. Uh, you know, uh, to, to be fair, getting divorced is scary. And if you're a potential client, you're sitting in my office, you know, you're looking around, diplomas all over the wall. I come in, I got a shaved head. I'm not a small guy. I can be intimidating. You know, I, I get that you're scared and you're probably not going to, to bare your soul to me in the first consult. Uh, but as the case evolves, you know, not only am I the only one who's going to fight for you in this arena, but you're also protected by the attorney client privilege. You know, even if somebody were to put me on the stand myself, I can't talk about anything we discuss. So you're, you're protected, not just by uh, 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 politeness and uh, social norms, but also by the law. You know, I can't divulge what we talk about, but uh, not a day goes by that, uh, I don't have a client who uh, decides to come clean about six months too late. So, or you find out it at the hearing. Yeah. Um, about, the about counsel that. tells me something that my guy did, you know? 
Yes. So, I mean, that that's another big piece too, is your strategy. And generally attorneys can work with bad facts. We can build a strategy around the bad facts, but you have to tell us those bad facts for us to be able to build that strategy. Um, for various reasons, there's less discovery that happens in family cases than you would in a, a high dollar class action lawsuit or a business lawsuit. And if you don't tell us those facts and we get blindsided by them, I mean, at that point, we're just trying to figure out how to mitigate the damage rather than being proactive. Every case has bad facts and good facts. And it's the attorney's job to build the strategy. And I thought Connie last week had a, had a very good point. It's the client owns the facts. You have to tell the attorney the facts. You're the one that owns those in your case. And it's the attorney's job to build you out a strategy that's going to most effectively get you to where you want to go with those facts. Think about it. Think about it like poker. You know, you don't always get dealt a perfect hand. You're going to have some bad cards in there, but you take a look at the hand as a whole and you can formulate a strategy on how to best play that hand. You know, if you dealt me a hand and two of the cards were covered up, I'm not going to know what to do. You know, I'm going to be flying blind to some extent and, you know, God forbid later on in the game, I'm going to have something come out of left field and just destroy me. So, you know, there's nothing I can't plan for or mitigate or deal with if you give me notice of it. Yeah, it's, that's, when, it's, when you don't, it's when you don't tell me that things start going sideways. And we find out at hearing, there's no time to prepare. You're like, Your Honor, can we, can we step out in the hallway real quick? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, we, we need to discuss something. So another piece I thought you made that it gets thrown around a lot um, in, in a lot of the Facebook groups and whatnot, the attorney-client privilege and who the attorney really works for. I see and hear a lot of men, oh, you, you work for the bar, like you have to do whatever they say. Actually, probably the strongest privilege is that attorney-client privilege. Um, I mean, we're talking about if, if Joseph or I is your attorney and we go out and talk about your case, whether it's with a friend, whether it's with family, whether it's with another attorney in the community, we risk losing our law license. And there are attorneys every single year that literally go to jail because for some reason, some judge puts them on the stand and they just shrug their shoulders and say, I'm not answering that. That's not something that's out of the ordinary. They usually end up, it usually ends up okay for them. But it seems like every year you read a couple of times where an attorney gets put on the stand and they refuse to answer because that their number one priority or the number one thing they have to do is protect that, that attorney client privilege. I, I tell my clients, you know, no offense, but I love my law license way more than I love you. So I'm not going to do anything to risk it. And that means talking about your case with anybody. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, then we'll, we'll move on now here. This is, this is another topic that gets a lot of chatter and is very, very polarizing. And I'm really curious to see your opinion on it. So why, why can hiring that pit bull aggressive attorney that's ready to fight backfire for you? Well, I think that in any county you go to or any courthouse, there's always going to be some attorney who holds themselves out as uh, you know, the wrecking ball, the pit bull, the scourge of the uh, the local divorce bar. Uh, but there are some real perils in hiring that person. Uh, number one, it's going to cost you an obscene amount of money. Uh, and I'll tell you why. You know, I think we talked earlier in the show about uh, one of the first thing the judge does is ask parents if there's an agreement regarding the kids. And if not, he's going to send you to mediation. Right. So, what a pit bull attorney will do is they'll file a motion to send the parties to mediation, even though he damn well knows the judge is going to do it anyway, just because it makes money. It's money and time he can bill for. You know, he's the attorney that's going to advise you to spend $2,500 fighting over a $500 issue. Uh, he's the attorney that's not going to return the other attorney's phone calls and make you go to court three times in one month simply because he's not responsive and 
you know, he'd rather be litigating. Um, when you're a, when you're a pit bull attorney, every issue looks like a T-bone steak. And you're going to go after it and sink your teeth into it and shake it until all the money comes out of it. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely a uh, an issue. I always tell clients, I said, the first thing I want to do if the other side's represented is I want to reach out and I want to see what can we agree on or what are we close to agreeing on? Let's take a, as few issues as possible in front of the judge because it's going to benefit everyone if we can narrow it down to we're talking just about whether your state calls it spousal support or alimony, maybe, maybe we're just we're just that issue. And instead of litigating everything else out, we go in front of the judge that first time and say, the only issue outstanding is, is spousal support, or the only issue outstanding is child custody. And it's going to save you money. And realistically, the best two parties to make a decision for your kids are going to be you and your co-parent. So if you guys are close or can agree on certain issues, you need to. You want to keep you want to keep it out of the court's hands if you can. There are some issues that are going to end up in front of the courts, but you gotta you gotta agree um, or find out what you agree on first. Yeah, I, I tell people, you know, I'm, I'm not just here to advocate for you. I, I'm also trying to be a responsible steward, you know, of your assets, and that means not treating you like an ATM. Uh, you know, there, there's always going to be uh, certain clients that, you know, are looking for that blue ribbon that says, I got first place in my divorce. You know, some people you can't reason with. But, you know, there is a time and a place to run to court and ask the court to do something. Uh, but those, those issues are rare. Uh, most of the time, if both of the attorneys are reasonable, even if the clients are you know, going through some rough times, you can craft a, craft a settlement or even a temporary settlement that will work. Um, I think most, most potential clients would be surprised how often we try and talk ourselves out of work. You know, there's, there's always some guy in your office wanting to hire you, even though it would be a complete waste of money because it's the principle. And, you know, you know, do you want to, do you want somebody to tell you, you were right? Or do you want to keep an extra three grand in your pocket? You know, that's one of the reasons people hire attorney anyway. Sometimes you're so emotionally invested, you need somebody you can take a step back and look at things like a business decision. Yeah, that's that's definitely the, uh, especially men who maybe feel like they've gotten a raw deal, uh, come back years later and they're like, I don't like this aspect of it. And I'm like, does it really matter now? <laughs> yeah. To yep, them, it does. But I'm like, I'm not going to take five thousand dollars from you to litigate something that doesn't change your life at all. No, no. Even even if you win, you lose. Yeah, the math. One hundred percent. So uh, we'll we'll move on to the ne next portion here. So, what advice do you have for men about moving on to their next relationship? Oh boy. <clears throat> you know, I mean, obviously there are some divorces that start because the men have already started a new relationship. But uh, if you're going through a divorce, uh, let's be honest, for most people going through a divorce is the worst thing they're ever going to go through, unless God forbid they lose a child. Uh, there's all kinds of emotions at play. Some of them are easily discernible. Some you don't realize until much later down the road. Uh, for a lot of people, you're going to be losing your best friend. They're going to become your nemesis. Uh, and there are a lot of things at play and a lot of moving parts. And you're going to be under a, an immense amount of stress. So why would you pick then to try and bring somebody new into your life? <laughs> not, number one, the, the you that they're seeing is not really the real you. It's the you, you know, in distress. It's the you under attack. You know, so is this relationship really going to last once everything settles down? You know, you don't need, number one, you don't need the added stress. You don't need the added complications. And sometimes it backfires and sets the other side off and makes them fight harder and makes you spend more money. So you, you owe it to yourself to get through this process, emerge from the other side 
and deal with what is now your new normal for a while. You know, you're probably going to be living somewhere else. You're not going to be seeing your kids as much as you did, most likely. Uh, you're going to be alone more often than you're used to. And your finances are going to be different. Even if you don't have kids, they're going to be different. So you owe it to yourself to get your legs underneath you and get some sense of stability before you decide to bring somebody else into your life. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to them too. Yeah, 100%. Uh, all the viewers, if you got any questions about any topics, we're getting close to wrapping up here. We're going to take a few questions at the end. So go ahead and drop them in the comment section on YouTube or Facebook. So we'll, we'll transition here. So what do you wish all of your clients knew from the beginning? Boy, that's a long list. Um, probably the main things that I wish men knew are it's okay to be anxious and it's okay to be afraid uh in, in our culture uh, for a man to show those feelings is a sign of weakness a lot of times but you know anxiety is really fear about the future it's fear about the unknown and for most men that's easily understandable because they've never gone through this before my job is to give you as much information as I can, walk you through each scenario, and try and answer every single question so that the amount of unknowns is reduced or eliminated. And when those get eliminated, then the anxiety and the fear will go away too. So don't be afraid to talk to your attorney, bounce things off your attorney, uh, and, and really partner with them. You know, I'm not like, a plumber who only shows up when there's a problem. You can ask me about all kinds of stuff. I'm always at your disposal. So if you have questions about the divorce or even post-divorce, ask me and we'll go through it together. That's, yeah. one, that's one thing I wish men knew. The, the second thing, uh, it's my job to keep my wits about me and to keep my eye on the prize. Uh, I understand if you're going to get emotionally sucked into this, I, I expect you to. But it's important to keep in mind two things. Winning your divorce or having a successful divorce is not the same thing as punishing the other side. And one doesn't guarantee the other. You know, sometimes I will suggest to clients that we give in or we agree to something that on its surface doesn't seem to be our advantage, to our advantage. But that's because I'm looking at this whole thing in its totality. And maybe by, by giving them something they want here, I know I'm gonna get something else back later that's going to make your divorce much more beneficial to you and give you a much better result. You know, and, and an example of that is, you know, cutting them off at the beginning. You know, you might save yourself $20,000 over the life of the divorce if you don't start off the divorce by antagonizing somebody like that. So I keep the big picture in mind. Sometimes it's hard for the men to see the forest for the trees in the moment, and I get that. But if I ever tell you to do something that seems to maybe not be in your best interest in a certain moment, understand that I'm trying to bring about the best result for you ultimately. You know, I, I try and give you the right result, not the right now result. I always use a football analogy on we're just trying to get first downs. If you're down 28 to three, you can't just start throwing Hail Marys. This isn't Madden. <laughs> um, we we got to make some positive steps to ultimately in the big picture get where we want to be. You know, sometimes uh, giving them the ball back on their own three-yard line is better than uh, dropping back into the shotgun on fourth and 12. Yep, very, very true. All right, so we got we got a very common question here. Um, how do you get visitation orders enforced? That's an excellent question, and a question that the, the legislature here in Illinois is, has just addressed. 
So there are three components to this. Number one, somewhere there's a court order, whether it's a one-page order, whether it's your parenting judgment, whether it's your divorce decree, somewhere there's an order that has a schedule in it. All right. You need to keep a certified copy of that schedule on you at all times. Keep it in your glove box, keep it in your attache case, because if you show up for your kids and she won't give them to you and you call the cops, those cops aren't going to do a damn thing unless you can show them a signed order by the judge with the clerk's seal on it that says she has to. So that's number one. Always keep a copy of the order that says it's your time on you. Number two, always make a police report. It, it's going to be a hassle. It's going to take an hour of your time. You're going to be ticked off. But every time she denies you parenting time, she doesn't bring the kids back, whatever it is, make a police report. And then third, once this happens two or three times, don't wait any longer. Go to court. And the judge is going to ask you a couple of things. And one of these things is, you know, prove it. And that's where the police reports come in. So number one, keep a copy of the, the relevant schedule on you at all times and make sure it's an official certified copy. Number two, always make a police report. And number three, take her back to court. You know, once you have a, a range of events, three or four events, don't let it just keep happening because if you let it keep happening for eight or nine months and then take her back to court, you know, the judge isn't even going to think you're serious. Otherwise, why'd you let it go for eight or nine months? Yep. See it. See it often. Oh, it's been six months. It's been nine months. Where were you when this first started? At, at, at one judge said at that, I remember this vividly because it pissed me off. You know, one judge said, this has been going on for a year. This isn't a violation. This is the new normal. So don't let it keep happening. You know, a handful of times and then go to court. Definitely doing nothing, at least out here in California, I've seen um, tendency that if you sh you're proactive and you show you're trying to be as involved as possible, at minimum, each time you go in front of the judge and say this is happening, even if they dismiss it and they don't do anything about it, which can be extremely frustrating, you're still painting that picture to the judge. Right. You know, and, and I guarantee if you go back in front of them a second time, a month later, two months later, then they're going to think, oh, okay, there is really something going on here. Maybe I need to address this. Just don't give up. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to pull uh, William. I've seen you. You've asked a few questions on here um, regarding the same topic. I can't find your question. But um, Joe, I wanted to ask you about dealing with the other party's bad facts. So whether it be a substance abuse issue whether it be prior arrests, we'll, we'll kind of leave evidence issues aside in this question, sure. but how do you go about showing the other parent there's, or that the other parent has issues or there may be issues with their um, parenting or just the supervision of the kids? So, you know, in Illinois, you're going to wind up in mediation at, at the beginning, whether it's a new divorce or whether, this is some kind of post-decree litigation where, you know, something has to be done because the other side's going off the deep end. You know, you're probably going to wind up in mediation to start with. My, my advice to you is don't agree to anything in mediation because you're going to want this to come before a judge. Uh, you're going to, you know, judges don't like dealing with modifications to parenting time, particularly post-decree. So you've got to try a little harder to get in front of them. <laughs> and that means deliberately not agreeing to anything in mediation. But once you're in front of the judge, uh, the judge has three, 400 cases. So they don't have time to investigate. They're probably, probably going to appoint somebody to do that. It's probably gonna be a guardian ad litem or a child's rep. And once that happens, you know, I, I know you said you didn't want to get into evidence a whole lot, but you should already have a binder uh, with the log that you previously suggested they keep of uh, all the times they came home drunk, all the times you found them strung out on the bathroom floor, all the times the police had to bring them home. 
you know, DUIs, uh, the time they had to check themselves in for a 72-hour hold at the local mental facility, uh, the name of their dealer, uh, you know, pictures, if you have pictures, uh, you should always be prepared to show somebody, whether that's her relatives or a judge or a policeman or a, a DCFS or a child's protective services worker, what's going on. And, uh, you know, he said, she said, doesn't get you anywhere in court. You're going to need to have to produce something, even if it's 12 months of credit card receipts showing that she's spending $600 a month down at Shorty's Liquors. Uh, you got to be able to show something, but you should be prepared to show something. So keep that log, keep that binder and be ready. That binder solves a lot of the problems that we've talked about tonight. If you keep an organized binder, the attorney is going to have to spend less time putting your timeline together. And if we're able to just submit like, Hey, here's, here's the journal entries. These were taken at the time of the events it's gonna be a lot more credible. So we'll, we'll take one last question. I guess this is more of a topic than a question. So in Illinois and in general, um, kind of want to address if there's maybe some mental issues or substance abuse issues in the past for you, and then if there are for your spouse. Um, I've seen that typically, especially with substance abuse, um, it's a lot of times it's not just one party. Um, True. Fun, fun fact, it usually is, despite one of them's pointing and saying they have a drug or alcohol problem, almost guarantee you the other one was partying with them um, just a year earlier. So if you have some substance abuse issues in your past, or maybe there's some mental issues, like in this, it mentions bipolar disorder, um, how can you address that if it's your issue? And then how, how do you address that if to the court if it is your co-parent? So... The, the the courts are very familiar with the scenario that you described. You know, uh, uh, I remember a hearing when I was a brand new lawyer where one side accused the other of doing coke, and they said, "Yeah, you gave it to me." Uh, so you know, you always want to watch out for that. But the the courts very familiar with scenarios where, if they could, you know, they would give the kids to a third party and neither parent. So if both of you have challenges with mental health or with addiction or substance abuse, the way to differentiate yourself from the other spouse is to number one, become completely clean and be honest about it. If one person says, yeah, you know, I, I smoke weed every morning or, you know, you know, uh, I do crack on the weekends with my friends and the other side completely denies it. You're setting yourselves up because the court's going to have both of you tested eventually. And then the truth's going to come out. Um, another way to differentiate yourself is to seek help. You know, it doesn't matter if, <clears throat> you know, you've both been in and out of treatment. If you're the only one still pursuing treatment, if you're the only one still trying to work on you, your issues or get better, you're immediately going to be a better alternative for the judge than your spouse. Um, sometimes it really does come down in the judge's mind to the lesser of two risks. Um, and a person who's at least willing to try to work on their problems is an infinitely better option than a person who denies they have any problems. Um, so if, if it's a case where both of you are in a similar situation, be, be honest about it and then try and get help and demonstrate to the court that you're trying to get help. If it's your significant other, um, you know, if they're not trying to get help or they don't want help or they deny it, you really don't have to do anything. They're going to sink their own ship. But if, if they are trying to get help, if they are trying to better themselves, then you'd better believe you'd better be trying to, because otherwise the judge is going to look to them as the lesser of, of two risks. Yeah. All right. So I see this comment. And I just can't help, but I know you'll you'll uh, address want to address this as well too, um, because I think we've probably all seen this. So Lee says uh, he said a binder. I got a big box that weighs fifty pounds of evidence, text, emails, testimony, um, 
and the judge didn't give a fuck. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll let you touch that first on on probably why that didn't happen and what your advice would be in working with your attorney when there are volumes of evidence. Uh, I don't know this gentleman's particular circumstance, and I don't know the, the facts of his case. But usually when somebody's in my office and they say something like that, <clears throat> it usually means one of three things. Either they didn't have an attorney and they tried to represent themselves, which meant that they didn't know how to get some of these things into evidence. Or uh, this is the fifth time they've been back to court <clears throat> in six months and the judge is tired of seeing them. Or you had a really bad attorney. And if that's the case, then I'm sorry. Uh, you know, not all attorneys are created equal. Uh, some are better than others. Uh, that's one of the reasons I suggest you, you get consults with three or four different attorneys. Uh, there are some attorneys that have personalities that maybe you just are going to work better with than others. But uh, uh, it's unfortunate that that happened to him. And I don't know the particulars, but, but generally speaking, when something like that happens, it's, it's one of those three things. Yeah, when, when, when I see something like that, usually my first question is, what was the strategy and what was relevant to that strategy? Yeah. Um, because uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, the, a judge out here in Southern California, they may see 100 cases in their morning call, and then they have two or three trials in the afternoon in the same week. There's a yeah. lot of information going through their heads and they see you once every three to six months. So in terms of evidence, it's usually effective if you find your most valuable piece of evidence that prove your point and create a narrative rather than just inundating with the court with hundreds of pages because it's not not feasible for the judge and their staff to dig through all of that stuff. Yeah, the, the relevance part's a big key. Uh, no judge is going to care that your spouse got caught with half an ounce of weeds 15 years ago. It, nobody cares. So the, the the best person who can advise you as to what's really going to be relevant or not is your attorney. Yeah, definitely. All right. So we'll kind of wrap up here. And um, what I want to do is it, turn it over to you to give kind of uh, final words of wisdom to all of our viewers that may be just starting out on this journey. Maybe I've seen some people mention seven, eight years in. Um, ooh, ooh. What yeah, well, so so what what are your nuggets? What are your words of wisdom for men everywhere that are kind of caught up in the system and feel feel lost? I I would tell them it, it's okay to be afraid and it's okay to to not have all the answers. Uh, that's normal. Uh, and maybe maybe you started off representing yourself, or maybe you started off with. Uh, the lawyer that your your aunt's grandma's cousin used to do their will 20 years ago and and maybe you get the sense that things aren't going too well uh but i'm here to tell you that's okay because uh it's never too late it's never too late to change your tactic it's never too late to change your strategy or your attorney and it's never too late to hire an attorney uh i would say about 40 percent of my cases I am the second attorney on, or I got hired after the case has been in progress for about six months. Uh, so I, I do a lot of triage, if you want to put it that way. Um, but even at that stage of the game, so to speak, there are things I can do uh, to get you a more favorable outcome, even if everything up until that point has been going wrong for you. Uh, I think some men give up hope and they resign themselves to the fact that this system that was not designed to protect their best interest uh, is undefeatable. It can't be swayed and that they're just going to go down in flames. And I tell them that's not true. Don't give up hope. Uh, it's as I, I put on my business cards, uh, it's never too late to start winning. And, and just because the first month, or six months or the first attorney you had hasn't produced the results you wanted doesn't mean that you can't salvage this. It doesn't mean that you can't get a better result than the one maybe you've resigned yourself to. Um, 
you know, if, if you, if you rent a car and it breaks down, you can get another car. Um, if you rent an apartment and it turns out to be a dive and there's roaches, you can get another apartment. So if things aren't going your way, hire an attorney, or if you have an attorney and things aren't going your way, you can get another attorney. Don't feel like you have to play with the deck you've been dealt. You can always ask for a shuffle and you can always get some new cards. Just don't give up hope. Don't sit there and do nothing. Be proactive and, and treat this like you would treat you know, anything else in your life. You're not going to let somebody mow half your lawn and then leave. You're not going to hire that person. You're, you're not going to hire somebody who cleans a third of the house and then leaves. You know, you're going to hire somebody else. So if, if your initial plan is not going well, then change the plan. Change horses, change strategy, whatever it takes, but don't do nothing. Great advice. Great advice. So um, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. So first thing I want to do again is because I think it's a very valuable resource to men um, is I'm going to drop the link in the chat on both YouTube and Facebook. So um, Joe's book, Winning Your Divorce. Um, I'll drop the Amazon link in there for you guys to go take a look at that. And um, Joe, so where where can they find you, um, and what areas do you what areas of uh, Illinois do you practice in? Well, they can go to my website, which is uh, www.emmerthdivorcelaw.com. Uh, that's my main source of uh, information. Uh, I practice in the Chicago suburbs, the western suburbs. So I basically cover Chicago, the surrounding counties and then some further counties out west. So if you're in Cook County, DuPage, Will, Kane, Kendall, DeKalb, Grundy, I will absolutely uh, sit down with you and talk because I can probably help you out. Awesome, awesome. So thank you so much for your time tonight, Joe. And for our viewers, we will be back next Thursday. Um, and our attorney we will have on on Thursday will be Colorado attorney Heather Mitchell. Um, she's going to have very unique perspective on the process as a whole. She's been a judge. Um, she's married to someone who's been through the system. So it'll, it'll be definitely a very informative episode. So once again, thank you, Joe. Um, thank you for spending the time with us tonight. And we'll see all the viewers next week. Thanks for having me. Be well.